Hey everybody, uh, welcome to the Apex Vaulting Podcast, this is episode 21, uh, sorry to keep everyone waiting, you know how track season gets, uh, indoor season started, I've been having meets almost like every other day, plus practices, and it's just been so busy and it was hard to, you know, nail down a podcast episode, uh, everybody that I wanted to have on was either busy and I was busy and we go back and forth, uh, but we're very, very lucky, today we have Marley Sabatino, uh, she's the school record holder at Harvard University. And she jumped with me in uh, high school. So we're going to kind of talk about a little bit about her career through high school, the recruiting process, and just jumping in college and several other topics. But the first thing I wanted to start on, well, I've had some emails come in over the last few months. So grateful. All you guys are saying great things about the podcast. You guys really appreciate it. And that makes me super, super happy. I know I got an email from one coach where he was talking about how the podcast is really motivating him to coach the pole vault and uh, make it more popular in his area. And I'm glad that we're inspiring people out there, you know, and thanks for listening and thanks for, for appreciating so much because it just brings me a lot of happiness to know that I'm helping people. And I know what it was like when I first started coaching. It was difficult to find information out there. And I'm glad that you guys are finding some of it um, informative and helping you make choices in your coaching career or maybe even as an athlete. Um, so I guess first thing that we'll start off on and kind of that got me in a tangent, uh, Marley was at practice today and we got some new polls at the club and flex numbers. Uh, Marley, what do you know about flex numbers? Uh, offhand? Um, so I know that the smaller flex numbers are on stiffer poles. Right. And uh, other than that, we don't really pay attention to them that much as athletes. I know we really more pay attention to the weights on the poles and and, you know, sometimes you consult the flex numbers, but right the time, not really. And I think that's really common. Like, I think if you talk, talk to people who, you know, jump or even coach, a lot of people are confused by the flex numbers. Sure, maybe some of the professionals out there, they're a little bit more aware of that because they're getting really, really um, rare poles or stiffer poles that not a lot of people get on. And so it starts to become more important. But I'll tell you, even as a club coach, I never thought I was going to need a 12-6 pole. And the thing is, thank God, UCS now makes 12-7s, and I have all UCS at my club, so I was able to buy those. I have a couple girls at the club in the last two years that are, like, between 5 foot tall and 5 foot 2, and they weigh about 100, 110 pounds. One, I needed to get 12-foot poles that were exactly 5 pounds apart or even 2.5 pounds apart because these girls were all jumping 11 or higher, and so they're really, like, pushing the limits of what their body can achieve. And that's what I think people don't realize. They think that, oh, if you're a 16-foot girl, then it becomes important to get poles that are close and flex. But the thing is, if you're pushing your personal limits, you're going to be on poles that need to be tighter, and they can't be 10 pounds apart. Like, some people, I'm shocked. Sometimes people order poles that are 10 pounds apart, and they think that's a good jump. But that's too big of a jump when you're trying to jump a PR. Like, Marley, what's your PR right now? Uh, 12, 11 and some fraction of an inch. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what, what pole were you on when you jumped that? Um, I believe I was on a 14, 150. Yeah, so could you imagine, I mean, what do you think? How would you describe if, like, the only other option was you had a 14, 160? Would you feel comfortable with that? No, definitely not. <laughs> yeah. So, and and I know even in high school, we had some poles for you that were like two and a half pounds apart. I mean, did you appreciate the fact that you had poles that were that tight in, in, in the, the series? Yes, definitely. I, I think that especially in high school, jumping with you, I, I really had every pole that I could ever need. I had a progression that I could count on, and I think that that was really important to me, maybe more important than it should have been in my head, but knowing that I would always have the next pole just five pounds up, I wouldn't have to skip around on different types of poles or, or different Right, it, it makes the transition much, much smoother. Yeah. And you bring up another point. A lot of people don't realize that when you're jumping on poles that are different manufacturers, every manufacturer has their own flex rating system. And, you, you know, we were talking about this earlier. I find it really strange that this is a secret. Like, everybody keeps these flex numbers close to the chest. And, I mean, obviously, if you buy enough poles, like, I have over 170 poles now at the club. I, I kind of stopped counting. I have to <laughs> probably figure out how many I have total. But um, you kind of can figure out what the flex ranges are. 
But the thing that is crazy is like, I don't know why that's a secret. Like, if I was buying a car and you told me you couldn't tell me the horsepower because that's the trade secret, I'd be like, well, I'm just going to buy the car that I actually know what the horsepower is. Because the thing is, from company to company, you know, a 150 in one company, let's just say for argument's sake, might be a 20.0 flex. But in another company, that flex might be a 21.0, which is actually softer. Like we were saying, the higher the number, the softer, the lower the number, the stiffer. Because um, what they're measuring is how much the pole bends when they put the weight in the middle, right? So when it bends down, they measure the centimeters. So that 20.0 is the that it bent 20 centimeters down. So obviously, if it bent 21 centimeters, it bent more. It's a softer pole because they use the same weight. But my thing is, like, we should know what those flexes are, and that should be more standardized, I feel like. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Like, could you imagine if, like, it's almost like imagine computers instead of like the storage space being gigabytes like every company had their own term for it and it was a little bit different you know it's like how would you know which computer actually stores more yeah. you know, memory does that does that make sense Marley yeah I think that this point has come up in my head a few times and it was only described to me as oh well when they make the poles when they're manufacturing them they don't know what the flex is going to be so that part is just kind of random so then it's random when you get the pole but there has to be some form of systematic progression in these polls well right yeah i mean i think look i I get that like they even talk about even with cars in this day and age as 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 great as the machinery is or the machining done on a car's engine a car to car coming out of the factory the the horsepower might be off five ten horsepower fine that i get that you know what i mean but the thing is like when you're ordering these polls they kind of have to be specific because you as the athlete need to know that you have a consistent you know uh a consistent difference in flex numbers. So it's like if you were jumping on a 20.0, you can't just go to a, a 18.7. That's that's more than a 1.0 jump. And typically speaking, when you're looking at poles, like a 1.0 jump is roughly five pounds. So it's like now it's like, yeah, maybe the labels on it weight-wise are five pounds, but you might have a really, really soft 150 and now you're going to a really, really stiff 155 and you might be making an eight, eight and a half pound jump. That's that's gonna be a big difference. So you think you're buying a pole that's five pounds up, but now in actuality, you got one that was eight and a half pounds up and you get rocked on the next jump. Yeah. Well, you need to make sure that that's closer. And um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, what from your experience as an athlete, when you maybe do have poles that are different brands and you have to go from one length to another, I mean, how does that feel to you, you know? Yeah, so I'm right now, I the poles I currently jump on at school, I jump on a 14-150 that's carbon, and all the rest of my poles are in the progression are UCS. So that's obviously an interesting switch when I'm going from a 14-50 to my 14-55, that's a a huge difference going from carbon to UCS and up five pounds of pole. But I think what's really important from the athlete's perspective about this is that the, the, the flex numbers, if they were more standardized, it would be so much easier to go on to a new bigger pole in a meet that I've never jumped on. Yeah. And maybe even a different manufacturer, because then Mm -hmm. you would know, you know, okay, well, yes, this is a UCS, this is a pacer, but they're both on the flex chart, they're this. So I don't even have to worry about the weights. It's like I just look at the flexes. Yeah. You know? So, so a 1455 is a 1455, no matter whether or not I've, I've ever jumped on that specific pole before. I think that's something that some athletes get caught up on. I've never been on this specific pole before, but it matters so much less if it was more standardized. Right. And sometimes the gripe that I have too is like when you're ordering poles, unless you call and specifically ask for a certain flex, I mean, you're supposed to be getting a medium flex, mm-hmm. but a lot of times I've gotten a soft or a stiff. And then that makes it tough because now I have to go out and buy another pole to try to cover the span because I'll get something that's instead of being 1.0 apart, it might be like 1.8 apart. And now I want to cut that in half because it's a big gap, you know. And that's the thing that I think, you know, some coaches need to think about is like as you start to build your series of poles, like sure, maybe in the beginning, you know, you have beginner athletes, you're a beginner coach, you buy poles that are 10 pounds apart. So that would be even a 2.0 difference in flex. That's fine. But eventually, as your athletes are getting better and you're getting them closer to their potential, you're not going to want to make a 10-pound jump. You're not even going to want to make a 5-pound jump. I mean, like I said, I have a lot of poles in my series for guys and girls, whether it's a 15-foot pole, 13-7, whatever, and even the 12s that I have for for Lily Brown and Amanda Katz and Sydney Shannon. You know, 
I have them two and a half pounds apart. Um, that that makes it a lot easier, like you said, for the athlete to know that you're not making a huge jump. It's not going to be a huge adjustment. It's a much easier transition, yeah. you know. Um, so how do you, how does that feel going from let's say like the the fourteen forty five or thirteen seven fifty five and then going to a fourteen one fifty carbon? Like what? How does that feel? Like the difference in the pulse? Um, so I mean, our carbon is. I don't. It, it's just very comfortable for me to jump on. I'm not sure if it's super soft compared to other. I'm not sure. I've never jumped on a 1450 yeah, yeah. that was UCS or, or another brand. Right. But um, yeah. I mean, I, I think that I'm comfortable on it. So okay. it's. Uh, and is your next pole 1455? Yeah. So UCS? so that jump is is the one that I'm I'm iffy about and. You know, whenever I go from the 1450 to the 1455, that's when I'm I'm t- testing out the pole. You know, I'm not running like it's my next jump at a, at a big bar, at yeah, a PR yeah. bar. So I'm there is that like, thought behind your head, yeah, like whether or not it's going to roll I'm over. I'm running like this is a new pole and I don't know what's going to happen. Right. So. Yeah. So, I mean, and look, that's a normal reaction sometimes for athletes to, who are going up. And I, I experience that sometimes with some of my kids that start to really move up poles. Um, like Amanda Katz at her last meet, she weighs 110, 115 pounds. She ended up on a 1240 that she's never jumped on before. So that's significantly above her weight. But I think for her, she knows in the back of her head now and, and her experience with the club that all the poles are so close in the series that it's not going to be a big deal. And she'll, she has that thought that it's just going to be two and a half pounds, five pound jump. Um, and I, I would be interested, it would be interesting for you to get the numbers and maybe even we, I can post it on the Instagram later, but like, you know, what is the flex of the carbon? What is the flex of the UCS? But we, here's the thing, what's crazy, we don't even know if they're getting flexed the same way and who knows if those numbers would matter. Because um, I know I had a 1585 back in the day for Craig Van Leeuwen who's on the Instagram, um, his, his lifetime best is 17 and a half. He would jump on a 1485 UCS and it would like completely blow through. We go to a 15190 carbon and then he'll get stood up half the time. Yeah, and this was in his PR, it was like around 15.8. And so it's like, it's tough. That's tough. So you don't know is it the pole, is it the athlete? Now you're concerned. And then the feel of it is very, very different. Carbon's a different material than fiberglass. And so I guess the other thing, I again, and I've recommended this in prior podcasts if you're a coach. You want to try your best to get poles of the same brand. You know, I think that just makes it a lot easier. Um, if you're having to go back and forth from different brands, that's going to make it a lot tougher. You're you're throwing in another variable that we're trying to eliminate variables as, as coaches and athletes, so we have less to, to think about and worry about. Yeah. You know? um, so I guess the the next thing I kind of wanted to just go over. Um, as far as like questions that I've gotten for the podcast, um, you know, mid marks, what's, what's your, uh, opinion of mid marks, Marley, and how do you, how does that help you as an athlete? And then, you know, I can kind of go over it as a coach and kind of explain in depth more how, how to use it. Go yeah. Ahead. I, I think mid marks are, are really helpful. I, I do use them at school, um, with my coach. Um, and I think that it's just, a lot more so a lot of people I know jump with the takeoff marks right right recording those and and figuring out if they're tight or out compared to based on those marks but I think mid marks are just a lot more reliable because you know if it's in the middle of the run you're not changing shortening up your run or or lengthening your stride to to try and make it to the box or you know however you're changing your run to to put up that jump Um, I just think it's, it's really very reliable for me and especially because I mean, even being able to feel my own jump, I think it's sometimes I can't really tell. You know, I felt the jump, but I can't really tell. Am I am I tight or did I just drop the pole too late? Am I yeah, not flat takeoff? Yeah. yeah. So I think that really having having those numbers really helps me. You know, I know like for my sixth step, you know, my mark my mid mark should be between X and Y. You know, and and knowing that going into a meet. Just like you said about the variables, just lessens the the variables that are changing throughout. Right. The so I, I think you know, to go off of what you said, the difference between catching the takeoff and catching the mid mark is vast because someone's takeoff, at most, I've seen people's takeoff change maybe a foot in a meet. You know, so whether they're in or out, it might change a foot, and that's it. I've seen people's mid marks change like sometimes four or five feet in a meet. 
you know, and and what that allows you to do is you can see is the person coming out consistently? Is their first step consistent? Are they maybe accelerating their run too early? You know, these are all things that can be manipulated so that you hit the right mid or, you know, you're go, you know, you're getting further back on the runway and opening up your stride or are you too tight? Cuz sometimes, let's say you're in at takeoff, a lot of times you're already overstriding, you're forcing yourself in and so that's why you keep getting that same takeoff yeah. mark and you keep pushing it back a half whereas if you were catching the mid you would see at the mid you keep going further and further out and you're still under well now that means you're overstriding so I, I think you know if you can catch both I think that's great you know I think that's a great idea I know a lot of times I'm gonna meet by myself coaching so I catch the mid it's a lot easier I can see the mid and watch the whole jump and I can see whether they're in or out at takeoff by their body posture, you know, whether they're lunging or they're just getting ripped off the ground. Um, so I don't need to really know the number. And it was it was funny, Lane Moore, who coaches at Wash U, who hopefully we get on the podcast this year, hopefully at Indoor Nationals we have time both um, to talk. But he talked about, you know, he jumped to 18-8, he's been to Olympic trials, and he said in his coaching career, he's like, I didn't even know my takeoff. All I knew was my mid. I just needed somebody to catch my mid and then I can kind of adjust myself. And I know even me personally, when I jump, as long as I have somebody to catch my mid, I'm, I'm pretty good. I, I can kind of dial things in. And that's a much more valuable indicator for me than my takeoff. Because I might not realize whether I'm coming out, you know, big in the first few steps or if maybe I darted out and I was spinning, you know. So it's like if I'm just catching my, that takeoff, it's not going to be super, super accurate, you know. I mean, does, does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I think that especially, you know, in the beginning of whatever it might be, a meet, a practice, um, mid marks are you know, my savior, <laughs> they're like, if I, you know, once, once I'm consistent and I, and I'm consistently hitting the same mid mark, like I know, you know, I can start going up poles, going up grips because I know that I'm comfortable with that takeoff and I'm not, you know, my run is consistent. I'm not changing things, um, every, every run. So I, I think it's like a good foundation for me to have every time I, I start jumping in any kind of jump session. Yeah. And, and the other thing too, what I love about the mid mark as a coach is you can really see whether someone's training is on point. You know, if the mid is, is gradually moving back as the season goes, you know, you have an athlete that's getting faster on the runway, you know, and I've, and look guys, I, I've even done like, um, the meters per second at takeoff. I've used um, Dr. Peter McGinnis's like method of like counting the frames uh, of the video, and you get the meters per second. And it, there is a correlation. That mid starts moving back, you start to see faster meters per second because running speed is just stride frequency times stride length. So if the mid is moving out, you still have the same number of strides, right? Because from the mid, if you use DJ's chart, you have six additional steps or three more lefts, and that means now that the strides are getting bigger. So if same strides, but the strides are getting bigger and you're not slowing the stride frequency down, you're gonna run faster. That's just math, people. You know, so it's like, that's that's a really good indicator of whether or not someone's getting faster or slower. Um, I, I can't say enough about it. And so again, if you have DJ's chart, and I've had people email me asking for the chart, I can certainly email anybody that's interested the uh, DJ's chart, or just apexvaulting at gmail.com. Um, I'll send you DJ chart, but that mid mark he has goes along with the grip, and you know with that grip you should roughly be hitting a certain mid. Like I know for twelve a twelve foot grip, it's supposed to be a forty mid, right? According to DJ's chart, so that means you have three additional lefts from forty to get to takeoff. That's how the mid chart works for DJ. There's other charts out there that are different lefts, but that's DJ's chart. Again, the other thing too, as anything else, whether it's training, jumping life in general, you have to make the mid mark uh, kind of personalized. So you start out with DJ's chart, but I might know, let's say Marley is a little bit further out at the mid than the average person. Someone else might be a little bit tight at the mid as far as the average person, but everybody has a little bit different run. You know, obviously, hopefully you're taking your people through a system and teaching them how to run. So it gets a little bit more standard with your, your athletes, but you can't just follow the mid chart religiously. You have to make adjustments uh, accordingly. Um, I would also say, if you are not catching a mid mark, you're missing out on watching your athlete's whole run. You're missing out on being able to see the whole jump. Because if you are coaching by yourself and you're looking down at the takeoff mark, 
there is no way that you're watching the whole jump. You're not seeing the flow of the entire jump. You're going to miss things. And so it's like in your best interest that you catch that mid-mark. I, I can't speak uh, more highly of that. I mean, early in my coaching career when, you know, I was coaching nine-foot girls, you know what I mean? And that was a big deal for me. Um, I had a girl that started no hiding because I was only catching that takeoff mark and she slowly would just move her step out because we would try to get her out and then she would just overstride and she starts getting stood up, you know. So you don't want to catch yourself in that position. So again, I, I would definitely use the mid chart. Um, I don't I don't know if I'm explaining it enough. I'm sure people are going to still have more questions, which again, email me, uh, DM me on Instagram, comment on, on the Instagram pictures, but definitely that's important. Um, I guess the last thing before we kind of delve into like Marley's careers, um, and she can speak on this is, you know, how to develop a system, how to develop athletes through having a system and how having a system helps you. You know, I know for me, I had an Instagram post recently where I posted uh, Sydney Shannon's jumps from a recent practice and I, it was three videos and someone commented, it was funny, it was somebody from the club and, um, they were like, oh, he's a liar, those aren't three different jumps, they're all the same jump, but they weren't. They were three successive jumps in practice. And what I wanted people to understand is that if you have a system and you're dialing people in, you're managing uh, these variables that we keep talking about, you will get way more consistency at, pra uh, consistency at practice. I can't believe how many people contact me and they're like, Bronco, you know, I'll spend two hours of running through, getting stood up, and I'll get one or two decent jumps. That to me is heartbreaking. I can't believe that people are, I mean, that's how much, first of all, we love our sport. We're willing to run through for two hours to get one good <laughs> jump. And you're like, all right, this is a good day. So happy, you know. And to me, that's not pole vault practice. You know, you should be taking lots of really, really nice jumps up in practice and working on some skills. And sure, even if it's a long approach day and you're just trying to max out that grip, fine. Every jump should be a full jump. And then, you know, if it you start to see that pole speed slow down too much, all right, we reached our max. We don't need to keep pushing. Like, maxing out does not mean that you should land on the runway. You know, um, I mean, what what would you say about as far as our system and some of the other things that you've experienced? Like, how important is it to have a system like ours? I mean, we have a standardized warm up. We, you know, we 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 definitely track the progress of certain things. And what what do you think? Yeah, I think that having, I mean, for example, like we start with. At, at your club, you know, we start with the, the running drills, the different parts of the run, and then the, the pole drills that we do to isolate different parts of the plant and, you know, the vault. I think that it's it's really important to have those those standardized things in place because it, it really, and again, I don't want to keep saying this, but it really decreases the variables and allows you to have more productive practices because you can really focus on single single corrections, single things, because, you know, you're already, what you want to say? Yeah, well, so, yeah, I, I think it's important what you're saying, because it's so standardized, you can kind of see what mistakes you're making and yeah. what corrections need to be made. Yeah. So maybe we're doing, like, running drills, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, my God, Marley's really bad at high knee butt kicks. <laughs> okay, so then probably the recovery phase of her running is mm -hmm. poor, which is causing her to kick out and overstride. Now she's not going to be in position to jump up. All right, we need to fix this. That's it. Yeah. You know, and it's so funny. So we're in a Starbucks. You may hear music in the background. And so talking about standardizing things, it's like um, this Starbucks, you know, we asked them to lower the music and they said they couldn't, they can't control the music. But yeah. I'm sure even, you know, all Starbucks have to play certain types of music. Like we're, you're never going to walk into a Starbucks and get heavy metal, right? But what they're doing is they're trying to standardize how a Starbucks is run and so they can get feedback and see what's happening. And then they might change one variable to see what the reaction is of the customer base. Well, that's what you're trying to do with your athletes. You're trying to stabilize everything so that you're like, okay, what happens when we change X? You know, let's say let's say we change the, the planting drill. Okay, now what happens to the athletes once we change the planting drill? Do they get better or worse? If they got worse, go revamp that planting drill again. If they get better, awesome. That's solved. Now let's move on to the next drill that we can change to try to in improve performance. But the thing is, if you don't have a system, like, again, going back to consistency and stuff, and like you were talking about the, the, the selected warm-up drills and such, if you don't have a system and your kids are just like, kind of like they show up to practice, jog around a little bit, and then get on the runway and jump, you're going to have a tough time. Because I think early on, sure, you might see some progress from kids, but eventually they're going to hit a plateau and you're not going to know why. Because you're not doing planting drills, you're not doing running drills, you're not doing baby drills, you're not doing jumping drills. 
you know what I mean? And then I, I don't know what off and round mechanical stuff you're working on, but if you don't have a, a, a stable progression, like at the club, we always do swing to a sit, swing to the belly, and then a full jump. If you don't have something like that to hold on to, then you won't know why they're making mistakes. When you see people making mistakes on a particular drill, that means there has to be a connection to the actual jump. So, I, I mean, does that does that make sense? Have you ever seen maybe like teammates or athletes that you've had, whether high school or college, where it's like because maybe they don't do those systematic things, they get caught in a rut? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's really easy to, especially if you have, I mean, let's say you have one run-through or, or a run-through practice or something, it's really hard to, as an athlete, sit down and say, okay, what, like, what's wrong? What do I do? And I think really having having these isolated progressions and all of that, I think, really helps you to, you know, parse out what's wrong, what am I doing well, what am I not doing well? And, and I think I've, I've definitely seen that in practice like you know athletes both in college and in high school get frustrated because they can't figure out what to focus on so you know every jump is okay let me focus on coming out bigger staying taller dropping the pole earlier and jumping up a tick you know and you're trying to focus on so many different things because you don't know what it is and right. then nothing is getting better right right so so i think that you know it's really like so you overload. mean even even harvard athletes can't think for about more than one thing at a time i definitely can't think about 10 things at <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, and so, I mean, now, you know, you kind of brought up run-throughs and we, we had talked about earlier about wanting to talk about that. I mean, you've had run-through issues in high school and such. Um, I kind of, one of my pet peeves, like everybody always wants to be like, oh, the athlete's just being mental. But, I mean, let's delve into this issue. Let's talk about, let's say, in high school when you had run-through issues. What was the spectrum of things that you felt were wrong when you started running through in high school? Because, I mean, we ended up doing the slow twos and yeah. we can talk about that, but... What, what do you think were some of the issues? I mean, that was kind of like, I guess, um, end of junior year really going into senior year indoors where, I mean, you, you ended your indoor state uh, meet of champs meet. You ran through three straight attempts at opening bar and you know how you did. Like, from a three. From, from a three. three. <laughs> right, right. Like, that's what we had to do. And, I, I mean, just to finish the story and we're going to talk about the process – uh, Marley ends up deciding not to go to nationals because she had a mark that qualified her for nationals. Decided to train through that part and get ready for outdoors. And outdoors, she finally jumped 12 again um, for the first time since her sophomore year because she had jumped 12-6 as a high school sophomore. Jumps 12 again and wins outdoors state meet of champs. So, I mean, it's a great, I mean, great story, but it's also a true story. And like, break down that process, like. What got you out of that point where you went to the state meet of champs, ran through all three attempts from a three, and now ended up jumping 12 from a six or seven left approach and jumped 12 again? Like, what what was able to resurrect your career? I mean, what were the factors? I mean, you know? Yeah, I think that, you know, what really got me into the, the whole rut with all the run-throughs was definitely something physical. Um, you know, was, was, you know, competing in four events, training in four events, in, you know, the long jump, triple jump, <laughs> yeah, 200, so, pull So you, ha you had some overtraining, yeah. Yeah, um, but then I think, you know, once I started running through and, and, you know, trying to pull ball on days when I was fatigued and had been doing so many other events, I think uh, I began to think, also because this is what I was told, that it was a mental block that I was right. having and you know being told that I think only really made it worse because I mean I was young and and I like I think I really just thought oh my gosh if it's mental I have no control over it and and so you know I think it did become mental at, at that point but um you know I think that another part of it was this and I don't know if you want to talk about this yeah. now but this central nervous system uh I guess central nervous system fatigue. Yeah, fatigue. Yeah. 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 So I, look, I think, yeah, a couple things. And you know, again, I, I like to be transparent and open too. I think another factor too is even diet. You know what I mean? Like you were definitely not eating oh, yeah. enough. Yeah. Um, you know, you probably thinking like a lot of pole vaulters do. I see a lot of people think it's like, Oh, well I want to stay light. I want to stay light. So I don't want to overeat, you know? Yeah. And so you definitely weren't taking enough calories period. Never mind if we talk about macros, you know, so macros are proteins, fats, and carbs, you know, so it's like you definitely weren't taking enough proteins and you probably for sure weren't taking enough fats, you know, um, so, you know, that was an issue, so now you're not feeding your body enough, you start feeling a lot of shin splints, and then, yeah, and then you start to buy into the fact that, oh, I just must be crazy because everybody else is jumping and I can't, you yeah. know, 
meanwhile, she's not taking into taking account all the variables. She's not thinking about her workload doing all four events. She's not taking into account her lack of diet. And then she's not taking into account that she's comparing herself to other girls and guys who only pole vault and only have to jump at my club. Like they don't have to even go to school practice because I'm very fortunate. There are a lot of coaches in the area that really love the club and really trust their kids and they know they're working hard at the club and they kind of like let the kids be, you know, at school practice, they might be just have to like do a recovery jog or bike and do some abs, but they don't kill them. And they, they really allow the kids to just, you know, do what they need to do at the club. Um, but Marley wasn't in that situation. So she's not taking all of it in. And I think the worst part of it, like you were explaining, is like once you get into that mental state, you really just buy into the fact that like you can't pull bolt, which is crazy because you jumped 12 six as a high school sophomore and have jumped well over 11 from a three, even in high school. So it's like, you're a stud, right? Like, she's really good. And so it's like, but you thought, like, that's it. Like, I should probably stop pole vault. I mean, like, go, go into that a little bit. Like, I mean, you yeah. did you consider quitting? Um, yeah, I definitely did. Uh, I think that, especially after that indoor state meet, I, I mean, you know, I was sitting outside after crying. <laughs> yeah, so at wintertime, outside, she's yeah. crying. I mean, it was humiliating. I, I ran through my sevens or eights that I was doing in warm-ups and then yeah. I went to compete from a three and I ran through those two um but I think that yeah how, how did I mean so let me ask this even you know to bring this in because I think you know parents you know obviously play a huge role and and just in case you're listening Mar uh, I love you Marley's parents you guys are great <laughs> um but you know, I, I get it sometimes like when a lot of parents have never been a really super serious athlete um it's different. Like, what, I mean, what kind of things were you even hearing from your parents that helped or maybe didn't help, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I think that my, I mean, I really loved school and yeah. I, you know, like that was, that was very promising for me. Like I really, you know, I wanted to go to medical school even in, well, in Yeah, but you only got into Harvard University. It's not that big a deal. <laughs> <laughs> no, Harvard's great. I'm sorry. Um, but, uh, so, I mean, like, my parents knew I was going to go somewhere, whether it was with athletics or academics. So, you know, my, I mean, not that they were discouraging, but I think my parents did, you know, say a few times that, you know, maybe it was, maybe I should stop because it was so mentally Draining. taxing yeah. on me. Yeah. And then also on them because they were seeing their child go to a meet I, and try and compete and just run through for two right, hours. Right. I'm sure. And I, look, I could imagine my heart goes out to the parents, you know, it's like, I, I deal with, you know, athletes at the meet, at practice, but parents have sometimes have a long drive home yeah. and either silence or tears or screaming. Yeah. And I, I can't even imagine the curse words that are happening in some car rides home. It's like, you know, I, I can imagine boy or girl, no heights at a big meet. Like, I can imagine, like, F you, mom. Like, I can't oh believe it. Like, shut up. Like, you don't know. What we, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I should have practiced more. Okay, yeah, whatever. Well, you didn't want to drive me. You know, it's like, whatever. I can't even imagine. That wasn't me. <laughs> I can't even imagine some of the car rides home. So it's like, and the thing is, like, look, as a parent, I'm sure, like, your biggest thing is, like, you just don't want to see your kid in, in pain, whether yeah. that's physical or emotional. And yeah. so it's like, hey, listen, you're really smart. You're going to go to Harvard. Why don't you just stop pole vaulting? You'll be a lot happier, you know, and I don't have to hear you cry. Okay, <laughs> let's move on. But yeah, so I mean, like, how did you, like, but you like, you made it through that. Like what, what helped you, you know, get through those times? Like what, what, what did you think to yourself when you'd hear that kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely consider, like I said, I definitely considered stopping at, at least for a short period of time. Um, but I think really going going back to your club immediately and really figuring I mean not to inflate your ego further, <laughs> but you know really going back to your club and you explaining to me that there's no magical process of you know me becoming crazy and I can't just no longer pull ball anymore and you know you really took me through those those slow twos you know we went to a two I started from like 20 feet or something so, so yeah just to explain yeah. the drill so we called it slow twos and what i did was like look again i've talked about it on the podcast before grip and pull stiffness is just resistance right so if i'm bench pressing and i fail at 200 pounds i'm certainly not going to add weight i'm probably shouldn't even keep the weight i should probably go down weight and make it easier so i can complete the workout the other thing is like let's say we really need to focus on form 
I mean, you can bench with just the bar. It's 45 pounds. So, like, me personally, my best ever is, like, 250 pounds for two. It should be more, but I hurt my shoulder this summer. Anyway, long story short, it's 250 pounds for two and bench press. But I can bench press the bar for form and really work on my technique and do it right. Bench that 45-pound bar as if it's 1,000 pounds, right? And so my idea was that we can do the same thing in pole vault. So we did something called slow twos. So it's four total steps, two lefts. And I was like, look, Marley, you've gripped as high as like 10, 9, 11 from a two. Well, let's grip 9, 6. We're going to grip 9, 6. And I demonstrated this drill for her because she didn't believe this was going to be possible. I was like, you're going to grip 9, 6, run from like 20, 21 feet. But you still have to be able to wrap 10. So it still has to be pole vault. You can't just run down and jam into the back of the box and just dive into the deep part of the mat. No. You have to be under control, stable, run tall, and whoop, you know, go up the pole, right? I, I, I don't know why I always make that sound for going up the pole. <laughs> but, um, so you had to do that. And so we started doing that drill where it's like, okay, now there's no excuses, right? One, you can't be too ex- exhausted for slow twos. Two, it's not that intense. Like, you shouldn't get hurt. It's not going to hurt your back. It's not going to hurt your shoulders or anything that might be bugging you as an athlete. And we can just focus. And it's so, so easy. And we're so far away from trying to PR. You don't have the mental pressure either. Right? It's like wrap a 10-foot bungee. This is baby stuff, right? You know, I mean, at least for you. I know for some people, maybe 10 feet from a two would be hard. But go ahead. Yeah, I think that, you know, also like a really important thing for me with that drill was that I didn't have to get all amped up. I didn't have to be like, okay, like, here we go. Yeah, you got to really try. try really hard. And I'm going to wrap 10. You know, it was it was... I'm going to take four steps. They're going to be some good form, but like basically jogging and, and I'm going to go through the jump, you know? And I think just like the repetition of that drill without every single jump being a a five to 30 seconds of mental preparation, getting myself pumped up just to take a few steps down the runway was really important just for it to be, you know, like an easy rhythm. And I, I just think, yeah, so that's something that really got me through the run-throughs, you know, because then I think we even did some slower threes, and I think right. we even went back to, to slow fives, and, and, you know, eventually started adding speed and grip and, and pulls and getting right. back to a normal Yeah, you could s- slowly start to put yeah. that back in, and instead of you having that mental pressure behind you of like, oh my god, I gotta get jacked up, it's like, no, I just stay tall, jump up, whatever the cue is, like, you know, we always have, like, a cue that we try to hold on to, kind of like a blankie when you're a little kid, you have that blankie you hold on to, but you have that cue, but it's like, all of a sudden now, it's not that I have to try so hard, it's just, just keep doing the nice, smooth jump, and slowly that's going to turn into a bigger jump, you know, where it's like, well, now you could add 70% effort, maybe, like, for someone like Marley, whose PR was 12-6 or senior year, um, you know, she can maybe easily jump 11 with 70% effort from a five. And it's like, okay. And then just slowly start adding, you know, and now it's like, she, I think, I mean, and you speak of this, but then you started to change the way you were thinking about pole vault. It's like, you're managing this effort and its intensity level. And when the time is right and you can max out, boom, you have a shot at a PR. Yeah. I, I think I was really, you know, with, with those drills and all of that we did, I think I was really rebuilding a foundation, which I had kind of lost. And a system, yeah, as we a, were talking a about. Yeah, a system and, and a foundation that, that I had really lost through whatever it was, overtraining, injury, whatever I was trying to overcome in these run-throughs where it was, it my, my solution was get really pumped up to do any jump and and like it's really important and there's so much pressure you have to you know being so tense and and really just going back to realizing that yes at 70 percent i can go from a three five six whatever it is and and clear a very decent bungee for a high schooler you know yeah yeah i mean that's like a great foundation to have like i don't have to I don't have to be in a, in a crazy, stressful mindset to do that. Right. And and the thing is, like, I, I think, look, there is value, and I don't want to take away, like, those guys that are scrappers and gamers, and they really get jacked up and go hard at meets. Like, that's awesome. That's really important. And I think when you're in a, a championship situation, like, you can't be thinking, you just got to go all out. But if you can never become cerebral, and you can never think about your jump, and you can never work on something, how do you get better you know, and, and I see it in all sports. I, I constantly use the UFC comparison. You know, I talk about UFC and I say, look, you have guys that are black belts in their martial art and could never be world champs because they're just not athletic enough. 
And then you have guys that even become world champions and aren't black belts. They're just freak athletes. And that's great if you're a freak athlete, but how do you manage and control the variables to make sure that you make steady progress? Well, you have to be cerebral. You can't just be like gung-ho and balls to the wall and just go hard if you want to make steady progress. And if you don't have some kind of system to lean back on, it's going to be tough. And I've heard of tough stories about even professionals, and I don't need to name names, where it's like they get stuck in a rut. And why? Why? It shouldn't happen. If you have a system, it's real simple. It's real simple. Because I know we even talked the other day, and I think it's so enlightening having you on podcasts right now for yourself and where you are right now and you're jumping because I think you can easily get caught up. Like right now you must be thinking, you're like, wow, that was a pretty dumb practice I had. I don't know why I did that to myself. Because you, you kind of got yourself all worked up couple days ago at practice and it's so funny for me as uh, my evolution as a coach now because I kind of talked to you about a conversation I had with an athlete earlier that day uh, who's not headed in the right direction it was really like simple calm conversation I know the athlete wasn't happy about it but it was easy and with you I kind of let you have what I would say like an old school Michelle Favre practice where it was like all right, we're going to yell and scream a little bit and you're going to really try. And even though it's not working, I'm going to let you keep doing it and, you know, whatever. And it's enlightening listening to you talk about it right now. And I can see it in your eyes that you're like, wow, why did I do that? You know what I mean? Like, because when you have a system and you know that, look, you're just managing these variables again, you know, you're managing your intensity level, you're managing your training. And we haven't even delved into training, which We'll maybe get to that, maybe not. But you know what I mean? It's like it, it makes it a lot easier on you mentally because that's where the mental part comes in. It's like when you can manage all those variables and be have peace of mind knowing that you're doing everything that you possibly can. And if today is a bad day, why was it a bad day? And you can dissect that and then create a solution. That's what's important. And look, let's forget about pull right? I mean, Marley, how many times have you had a girlfriend call you and be like, oh my God, my boyfriend, he sucks and he does this and he does that and he doesn't really care about me, he doesn't call me back. And what do you, you probably give her a solution. And what does your friend do? Doesn't listen. She doesn't listen, right? <laughs> that girl is probably like, uh, you know, but I like him anyway, I'm going to stay with him. It's like, you should have broke up. He cheated on you. Break up with him. He keeps cheating on you. No, but like we worked it out. And it's like, okay, so don't call me when he cheats on you again. Like, just don't call me. Don't complain. I don't want to hear this. I gave you a solution. You don't want it, okay? Be happy with your cheater boyfriend, right? And it's like, so it's kind of like the same thing with your pole bolting. Like, you know, if you're not happy, you're having a bad practice, you're starting to run through. Well, I hope you have a system that can allow you to dissect why that's happening and you can go back and fix those problems. Like, going back to what we said earlier in your high school days, it's like, look, we had to address your diet. You know, you definitely weren't eating enough. You thought, it's like, oh, if I could just lose a few pounds, I'll jump higher. And we were losing too many pounds. Then, you know, it's like the overtraining. We had to address that. Like, I made modifications at the club so that I, I didn't beat you up. You know, and then you started to speak up at high school practices and say, okay, I can't do X, Y, and Z all the time. Pick and choose, guys. You know, I'll jump it. I'll long triple at these meets, and I won't long triple at those meets. Um, and then that gave you peace of mind. That's where it helped you mentally realize, like, oh, my God, I'm not, like, a spaz at pole vaulting. Like, I know how to do this. Which, again, for anybody listening, I, you have to understand, Marley jumped 12-6 as a high school sophomore. That was a pretty big deal. I remember coaches were, like, drooling over you at that point. You know, I, I know now the game is changing. You know, obviously, like, higher heights are, are even more important, you know. But still, I, you know, not a bad jump, 12-6 as a high school sophomore. And... You literally, by senior year, are thinking that you're not good at pole vault anymore, that you can't do this, you know, which which is insane. Um, so let's let's go into a little bit the college thing now that we kind of went through all, all that, like the, the mental stuff. But, like, you know, you get through indoors, you know, you deal with those problems. We fix outdoors. But how did, how did you end up making that choice to go to Harvard? I mean, how did you end up doing that? And what, what could you speak of as far as your experiences at Harvard and being a D1 athlete? And, I mean, obviously the balance between academics and athletics, you know, I mean, Harvard's a pretty tough school, I think. Right? <laughs> yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, to address your first question, I think that the, the big reason why I chose Harvard, besides the fact that it was Harvard, um, <laughs> was because of um, Brenner Abbott, the coach, um, who, you know, when I talked to you, 
I mean, I talked to a few coaches on official visits or non-official visits, and, you know, Brenner seemed like someone who would would talk to me and would, you know, wasn't like, this is the training plan, this is what you jump, this is what you jump on, and, you know, he, yeah. he was really willing to work with me, you know, my, my technique, you know, we do a little different technique. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and just, you know, he, he seemed like, I guess flexible and and I think that that was like a big thing I was looking for in a coach someone who I could talk with about training not just be you know not not that I'm gonna say you coaches have, do this but not like but you I have to fit to in a rigid yeah. system because yeah. I you know and again we're talking about the northeast right now because you visited mainly northeast yeah. schools um but I just actually wrote an article on the blog on the website you can check it out and I talk about early season training and I, the, I my opener is despite popular belief you can't just train a pole vaulter like a sprinter. I mean, a lot of schools, and I'm sure some of the schools you visited, because I know I had, uh, I've had girls go to diff different Ivy League schools and uh, not Harvard, and know that their experience was like it was like Monday, Wednesday, Friday was like hard sprint days with lifting and or plyos, and then Tuesday, Thursday were pole vault. So it's like your Tuesday, Thursday pole vault day was actually supposed to be a recovery day. Good luck. That is going back to central nervous system fatigue and and run throughs. If you are training that hard Monday, Wednesday, Friday with sprint workouts, plyos, and or lifting, and now on Tuesday and Thursday you're expected to pole vault, you are going to feel so foggy. And for people who have never experienced central nervous system fatigue, when you go hard, you do high-intensity things like full-out sprints, full-out jumps, um, you know, plyos, or really max effort lifts, you will feel like sometimes like a truck hit you the next morning and you will feel so foggy you will not be able to react fast enough and if you try to pull vault under those conditions i hope you're doing slow twos because that's yeah. probably all you can do yeah you know um so so yeah you found a school that was going to be flexible for you and and respect your training methodologies and things that that you do you know uh, go ahead um and I think, yeah, so I guess going a little bit into my college experience, I think, um, you know, I've, I've been lucky uh, training there and, and also, you know, training with you in the summers. Um, yeah. I think that, you know, something that I've noticed throughout my college career is I've been able to be decently consistent, at least more consistent, a lot more consistent than I was in high school, you know, with, with the ups I, and downs. Yeah, I agree. And I think that a big part of that was to go back to this, you know, the systems that I've had in place, you know, for example, just to talk about the summer, you know, in the summers, having this, like these regimented lifts and progressions in the lifts and, and progression through, you know, vault drills. And I think that, you know, that's been very important. And well, yeah. so let me mention this, like, cause you bring up like in the summers and even your training at Harvard, how yeah. it's changing and evolving. You have yeah. progressions, you know, and, and we had mentioned that on the car ride over too, talking about continuing education for coaches. And look, unfortunately for pole vault coaches, there's not a lot of information out there. And I, I think it's hard, you know, I mean, certainly I'm telling you right now, anybody who'd ever want to visit Apex Vaulting, we're a very welcoming place. We'll let anybody come in and, and learn from us. But it doesn't seem like there's a lot of opportunities out there. I mean, I hope to continue to do the podcast, Instagram, put information out there and and I hope to eventually grow a base where we can do seminars and such, you know. But you kind of have to do the legwork. I know even me personally, I would, man, I, I got the opportunity. I remember one time on Pole Vault Power, they posted that Alan Launder wrote Beginner to Bupka, who, you know, has passed away since. But, like, he wrote Beginner to Bupka, was doing a Pole Vault Clinic at Slippery Rock. And they said for $500, you could, you know, apply to be an intern kind of at this camp and work alongside Alan. I was like, awesome. Sounds good to me. So I sent an email. And as it turns out, only two other people filled out to do this, which I couldn't believe. So I ended up not having to pay 500 I actually got paid 500 And I got to coach with Alan Launder. And it's made the, a huge difference in my coaching career. You have to take opportunities like that. You know, I've driven 12 hours to Tennessee four summers in a row a few years back to work with Roman Bacharnikov. You know, you need to take as many opportunities as you can to learn. But I would say also step away from pole vault too, and you need to, you have to wear several hats as a coach. You're, you're a strength and conditioning coach. You are something similar to a martial arts coach when you're teaching technique. You know, you, you have a skill level, right? Like, because the black belt is just meaning you've mastered all the skills, right? So you're trying to teach skills, you're a technician. And then the third and final thing 
is meat management, which I would I would compare it to being a crew chief in NASCAR. You know, car comes in for a pit stop. Are you changing all four tires? Are you filling up the gas tank? Or are we trying to, you know, be a little bit faster and just save, save a little weight? Or are we adding wedge, taking wedge out, you know, to, to change the, the handling of the car? You have to make all these calls after each individual jump. You know, are you going up grip? Are you going up? So there's a lot of hats that you have to wear as a coach. And you have to work on all these different areas and they're different types of work. You know, meat management, strength and conditioning, and then technician, right? Like a martial arts coach. Um, these are things you have to work on. You have to continue to evolve. And to go off the social media that we were talking about before, me doing the social media has helped me realize how much my coaching has evolved and where it needs to evolve more. You know, it's allowed me to record that. And I mean, obviously, I, I feel like, you know, you guys have definitely reaped the benefits of that, you know. So, you know, going back, I kind of went off on a tangent, I apologize. But you, so you, like you said, you going into the summers, you're always training, you know, at the club. What, what else would you say about that? Um, I guess I was going to talk about, you know, and like training at school. I think that, you know, I mean, of course, we have our strength conditioning programs and, right. and our um which I think we have a great strength and conditioning program. Um, yeah. And um Well I f- I feel like you've brought in a lot of information from Harvard, you know, what you've done strength and conditioning wise there. Yeah, yeah. And we've we've seen, you know, what could maybe even work at my club, what doesn't work in my particular situation, maybe for all my athletes, but we've always tried to make uh make it work for you individually, you know? Yeah, and I think that's something really important that I'm not sure if is the case at all schools, but I think is you know, the coaches have told me, you know, coaching at Harvard is different than coaching at other schools because you don't just tell athletes to do something and they follow blindly. You know, they're always asking, well, why are we doing that? Why are we doing this? You know, yeah, and, yeah. And, and we really want to know. And, you know, I don't know how, how true that is, how much other athletes at, at other schools, you know, just kind of follow blindly. But I think that's a really important experience or a really important part of my experience there, too, because whether it's the lifts that we do or, or the training, the, the technical training in the pole vault or, you know, our sprint mechanics training, whatever it is, our, our coaches are all open to, to explaining why we're doing it, what the progression is, what we're, we're focusing on, whether it's speed or strength or, you know, what kind of phase we're in. And I think that that really helps me follow along with what I'm gaining from my right. training at all times. And look, I think that brings about, you know, another, uh, another topic is accountability, right? Like we're talking about continuing education for coaches and I was trying to explain how like, you know, what coaches need to do to continue their education, kind of touch upon it. But another thing is accountability. If you think as a coach that people should just listen to you because you're the coach, you're sorely mistaken. You know, you have to earn an athlete's trust and if athletes have questions, have, you need to have an answer for them. I'm not saying like, look, I don't know everything either. You know, kids bring things up. I'm like, oh, I never heard about that. And then maybe I go research it or maybe I go figure it out or or I try to hear out the kid like why they want to do that and we see if it makes sense or not. But you have to do that. That's that's being transparent. That's being accountable. The, the days of just telling people like, well, listen, I'm the person in charge, so listen to me. Good luck. Because the way I always explain it, and you know, it's funny, I think a lot of times track is so entrenched into the school system and they think, you know, everybody's even playing field and we don't want anybody to have an unfair advantage. But I'm in the business mindset because, you know, look, Apex Vaulting, it is a business. It is what provides me a livelihood. And the thing that I feel with Apex strongly is the better job I do at Apex and the bigger the business is, the more people I can help with pole vaulting. You know, that's ultimately my goal. That's my, for me, mission statement for Apex is grow the sport and help as many people as possible. So the more successful my business, the more successful I'm gonna be at that mission statement. And the thing is, when you run a business, if you are not doing a good job, your business will fail. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, there's people that are in school systems that are coaches who the AD doesn't really care about track and the principal at a high school doesn't care about track. and You know, whatever, the whole athletic department's not that big of a deal about track. And so a bad coach can kind of skate by a little bit. And the thing is, that's not fair. And, you know, and that's why, you know, I've been very happy that you were able to go to Harvard where, you know, the coaching staff uh, completely, like, works with you to find out what's best for you. Because that's that's ultimately what everybody should be doing all the time. You know, we can't just cookie cutter, be like, well, I'm, 
I'm basically a 200, 400 coach. I'm just going to give everybody the same workouts, watch everybody practice for a half, a half an hour to an hour and a half, and I'm done for the day. Mm-hmm. No, you have to individualize, you know, yeah. even pole vulture to pole vulture. I mean, you had a lot of shin issues where it was like sprint workouts earlier in your career were not going to work, yeah. and that's dumb. I can't just be like, well, Sally does sprint workouts tomorrow. You have to do them even though you're in pain, Yeah, you know? No, and I, I think it really, I mean, it also helps the athletes to buy in because, I mean, like something we've touched on before, a lot of a lot of the male athletes, especially on my team, actually, are have been worried about, you know, what's my weight? What's my weight going into the season? What's what's my BMI? You know, worried right. about being too heavy. And I think that really sitting down, I mean, all of us, with our, our strength conditioning coach, um, Jake Niederman, he really is very open to explaining you know what we're doing in our training at all times and and it not only helps us to understand and like you know answers our questions on a basic level but also helps us to buy into our training fully and, and really put everything we have into it because we know exactly what we're supposed to be getting out well it's funny because that kind of goes back to the mental aspect we were explaining before if you don't know why you're doing what you're doing and you don't buy into why what you, why you're doing what you're doing you won't work as hard. Yeah. You're not going to try as hard. You're kind of going to go through the motions, and you're going to get very vanilla results. You know, it's going to be very bland. It's you're not going to get better, and then you're going to want to blame either the strength and conditioning coach, or you're going to want to blame your pull vault coach, or you're going to want to blame the sprint head coach who does sprints or whatever. When it's like, wait, someone along the line didn't get you to buy in, and you're just half-assing it. Yeah. You know, and but, some, but it makes sense. I think it, it's hard to work towards an abstract verbal goal yeah. like you should be doing this that if that's what you're if that's what you should be motivated to work towards a you should be doing this you know if you have no understanding of the deeper meaning to what you're doing then it's, yeah. it's hard to work to right. put in all of the time and effort especially when you're out of school like harvard and you have really tough academics that you're that you're working on it's hard to put in those extra hours on the track if you don't know what's going to come out of it. right and and it's it's so crazy to me because I, I was just saying at practice earlier today, I was like, my big thing as a coach and what I think is important is that if I, I, I hate to be like uh, morbid, but if I die tomorrow, my athletes should still be able to pull bolt. They should still have enough tools in their tool, tool toolbox to continue to improve their technique, to continue to improve their training, you know, and, and just get better. And if they can't, then, you know, it's like, I didn't, I didn't do a good enough job. And I know I've even heard, like, apparently, like, Rick Scher at one point said, um, you know, it's a good sign of a coach. Once your athletes leave you, um, they don't get any better. They get worse. I get that. I do. I think in the early evolution of a coach, like, I totally get that. Because you're kind of, like, spoon-feeding your kids. You're holding their hands. And, and I know Rick runs a really strict system. But hear me out. If your if your athletes one don't have the passion to continue training, two don't have the understanding of what they're doing, then you kind of failed at some point. You you made robots, you made very good robots, but see, I like artificial intelligence, right? AI. I like my athletes to be able to think, right? So it's like that's what I think is powerful and something that it, it's so funny and you know, I'm 37 years old. I just had my birthday uh, last week. And I haven't been coaching that long, right? Like I started coaching, I believe, like 2004, 2005. The club started in 2007. And more and more of the people that I've coached over the years have become coaches. And it's amazing to see that, that you know, these people love the sport so much that they want to continue coaching. You know what I mean? Not just at the club. I mean, I'm talking about there's people that are coaching at high schools and such. And I, I mean, I can't wait for the day where one of them coaches a college. You know, that would be yeah. cool too. But, you know that's the thing you you need to kind of push that you know it's like if you don't have the why if I don't learn the why you're not going to have that kind of stuff you know and I pride myself on you guys going to college and busting your butt and getting better I mean look everybody has their cases I've had some athletes that have gone to college and one not continues to jump or gotten a little bit worse but more so than not I have a lot of people that done very very well at the college level you know and I think that's you know one I I think I have great kids that I've coached over the years great athletes I've coached but you know we at the club stress that passion you you have to be passionate you have to go above and beyond you know Um, if you want to be successful you, you can't just be you know riding you know coasting in just following doing basic stuff. Yeah, yeah 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 you gotta know what you're doing you know yeah so I uh, 
Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of anything else that I wanted to talk about. We've done a, basically an hour. This is 59 minutes and 15 seconds in right now. Very, very exact. Um, but I, I, I think we've kind of covered everything I could think of. Um, I mean, is there anything else that you could say about maybe the recruiting process that was either interesting or worried about or something that maybe once you got into college, you're like, why did I even care about that? Or, you know what I mean? Like, is there anything, other advice you would give people? Like, you know, there there might be a girl right now that's jumping 12 to 13 feet that's looking at different schools. Like, what, is there anything that you would like to tell them to yeah. help them? I think that, you know, there is something I was talking to Lily Brown after she um, she went on an official or unofficial visit, I'm not sure. But yeah. um, and something I said to her was, you know, I asked her, did she meet the coach? And she was like, yes, of course. And I was like, did he seem like he loves pole vault? You know, like, yeah, was he yeah, excited? Yeah. Was he passionate about it? And she was like, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I was like, okay, like, good. Like, that's important because, you know, that's not really something I, something I thought about um, when I was coming into college. But I think that that's, like, a really important thing to look for in the recruiting process because whether or not you're at an academically tough school, you know, or, like, whatever you're pursuing in college, I think you're always going to have these lapses in energy or motivation or whatever it is your emotional attachment and drive and desire to 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 be a part of this sport and and or maybe not but you know maybe and um i think that you know having a coach who is passionate and and really deep down like loves pole vaulting loves this sport loves his job loves what he's doing you know is is something really important that you know keeps you going when even you as an athlete are are wavering in motivation or you know, I just I think that's something that really enhances the experience and and makes it much better. Yeah, I look. I mean, it was funny because um, I had Andy Fetzer on or SUNY Brockport uh, on the podcast, and you know, look, me and Andy are good friends and and we get along, but we have our differences of opinion on this or that in the pole vault. But I still to this day highly recommend SUNY Brockport. You know, I think Andy, speaking of what you said, is a super passionate coach, really loves the pole vault. Um, they obviously have great facilities and access to equipment at, at Brockport. And those are the things that you need. You need a coach that really, really cares. Because at the end of the day, as long as that coach cares, you're going to have a good experience. And I know even for me personally, and you know, we've talked about this, Marley, because now I've been coaching you how many years? Is this seven? Yes, seven years? I think so. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I mean, there were definitely points when I was coaching where I was not happy. You know what I mean? I, I just, you know, and, and they were actually during some of the more successful years. Like, we had a lot of good athletes, a lot of good things going on in the club. But I just, for whatever reason, wasn't happy. And, you know, I, I just didn't know kind of just where I was going in life in general. Because that happens. And I think that happens to you guys as athletes, especially going through high school, going through college. Like, yeah. you know, what am I going to do? You know what I mean? Like, what's going on with my life? Like, football's great, but, like, what's my job going to be? You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. You start thinking about that stuff. and. And look, I, I really did some soul searching and I didn't know where I was going with the club and I just, until I figured that out, you know, I, I gotta be honest, I don't, I, I was, the right words were coming out of my mouth when I coached, like I was giving the right adjustments, but the passion and enthusiasm were not there. And I, and I do think some people suffered because of it, you know, um, now I'm in a much better place, you know, I mean, I think the last couple of years have been really, really good and I've been super, super happy and I think that's also reflected in the growth of the club and, and how many people are there now and how everybody's doing. I mean, goodness gracious, man. I mean, I, I know last year I posted that, like, the picture of, like, uh, the the mighty midgets, you know, I yeah. call them. You know, they, they're all girls that were, like, five one five two or something like that, and they all jumped 11 or higher, and it's just great technique and great passion, and those girls worked hard, and, you know, I, I think just that's the thing. If you, you go somewhere where there's passionate people and enthusiastic people that just spreads and it helps. But if you go somewhere where it's like everybody's kind of miserable, um, that's not going to be a good time. You know what I mean? You're going to have a tough time getting better because uh, you're going to have to be that lighthouse of enthusiasm for everybody else. It's going to suck the energy out of you. So, I mean, I think that's a that's a wonderful point. You know what I mean? Like, you definitely have to go somewhere where, you know, you're going to be around people who are passionate. And I think too many people just sometimes get caught up with maybe, oh, well, I want to be the best girl or guy on the team. Okay, that's great. But yeah. that's not going to be, that's not going to help you. You want to probably go somewhere where you're going to be challenged a little bit, you know? Or going somewhere where you're like, 
oh, all of these girls jump 12, 6, or 13, or higher, yeah. you know, and it's like, that's not really what's important, because if they do that, and they don't train, they're not getting better, they're miserable, they kind of want to quit, you know, that, that's, that doesn't that's help what you're going to be around, that's the environment yeah. that you're going to be around, and if you want to get better, I mean, don't, don't look for the girls who are jumping a PR, you know, a PR for you, or, or, or really high, you know, look for people who really love the sport, because well, right. that's what you're going to right. thrive the, off of. The thing to add on that, and I guess we'll wrap it up, is, I mean, look, I can't tell you how many schools I know where they always recruit, like, some of the top kids, and then they go there and they don't get any better and they get worse. Because one, like you said, it's not an enthusiastic, passionate place. And then on top of it, pet peeve of mine, and it's not okay in my club. If you are just jumping to try to get into school, please leave my club. I'm t- like, if anybody from the club is listening, if you are jumping at my club in the hopes to get into school and that's it, and you don't really care about pole vaulting, please don't come to practice again. Because you need to really love this sport. You need to be passionate about this. I, I always talk to people. In life, you need to do the things that you care about. And if you're just doing something for some minor goal, like, oh, this will help me get into that school. Like, you're, you're literally wasting your time. Because you have a big problem on your hands. You don't know what you want to do in life. And you better figure that out. Because most likely, if you're that kid that's pole vaulting because it's just going to help you in school, you're probably also picking a major because that's a respectable major and uh, I should make a lot of money doing that. And then you're going to grow up to be that 45-year-old person who is miserable at their job, hates their (laughs) life, and has to fill the void with other things. You know? Um, So... You know, really, like, do the things that you love and try to surround yourself with a good training group. You know, that that's super, super important. I know for you, you're happy, um, you know, and I know Gabby loves it at SUNY Brockport. You know what I mean? That girl is super, super happy there, and I just love seeing her every time she comes back, and Andy's done such a wonderful job with her. So I think those are some important things, you know. Um, and to wrap up, uh, you know, some of the things we're coaching, like, you know, make sure you understand the mid-marks, uh, make sure you're trying to continue your education somehow and accountability. You know, you got to be accountable uh, for things. And yeah, we covered flex numbers earlier too. That was probably confusing and we went through quickly. But um, I think we got to go. It's been over an hour. I know Marley, Marley has a wonderful boyfriend waiting for her. So, um, you know, I don't want to keep Scott waiting. Um, thanks for listening to Apex Vaulting podcast um marley thanks for being on here yeah thanks this is really fun (laughs) all right see you guys later